welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Should you be allowed to wear a Make America Great Again hat or a Me Too button when you go to vote? The Supreme Court justices appear to be divided about that at oral arguments today. They were reviewing a challenge to a Minnesota law which bans the wearing of a political badge, political button, or other political insignia inside the polling place. My guest is Daniel Weiner, senior counsel at the Brennan Center. He was at the arguments today. Daniel, all states forbid electioneering at the polls and within a buffered zone. What's the First Amendment argument of the challengers here. Well, sure. Well, first, thanks very much for having me today. Um, the challengers essentially are arguing that while all states prohibit electioneering, um, Minnesota goes farther in prohibiting all political apparel, and that that uh, effort to broaden the restriction is unconstitutionally overbroad. Um, the court actually pressed the challengers a bit, though, to, to explain in more detail how they thought Minnesota had exceeded uh, the the First Amendment's uh, had exceeded the the appropriate scope of the law, and they and they weren't really able to answer the question, partly because I think. Um, you know, there is some divided opinion, and some of them uh, might have even said that, uh, you know, laws that prohibit any electioneering are unconstitutional. So they didn't really want to be pinned down on that. But essentially, this law goes farther even than the laws that just prohibit, you know, a button with a candidate's name on it. I understand that, uh, according to Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr, the justices question the lawyers about all kinds of hypothetical T-shirts mm-hmm. bearing parts of the Constitution and coordinated efforts to wear white clothing to the polls. Is there a problem with drawing a line with a law like this? Well, you know, I am a little skeptical because, frankly, line drawing is part of the law. And I think as the counsel for the the state uh, pointed out, when you go to vote, uh, there are election judges, and they have to draw all sorts of lines, and they have to exercise discretion. Uh, Minnesota, you know, for instance, is a same-day registration state, state, so the election judge has to make a decision on the spot about whether you're eligible to vote, uh, and, and, and they have to do that. Um, so while... Uh, line drawing certainly uh, is an issue, and it needs to be, uh, you know, constrained to some extent. The fact that lines have to be drawn, I don't think in and of itself should be a problem. Was that Minnesota's main defense? That was one of Minnesota's main defenses. Um, you, you know, they also, uh, I think, uh, hammered very heavily on the justifications for this rule, including the notion of uh, decorum in the polling place and uh, the idea that when you go to vote, no matter how raucous the campaign was, the actual voting experience should be one where you put that aside and you have kind of a calm environment. And somewhat surprisingly, Justice Kennedy, who is tends to be a very uh, forceful advocate for First Amendment rights, actually seem to sympathize with that point of view, as did Justice Breyer. Um, so that's something that they hammered on. And then they also hammered, and this is certainly what the Brennan Center uh, has emphasized the most, on the fact that some of the apparel the petitioners wanted to wear, specifically the apparel calling on election workers to check identification um, in a state that does not require voter identification,
identification was far more than just passive political expression, but was actually attempting to manipulate the electoral process. And that goes far beyond sort of the initial arguments. And petitioners actually kind of backtracked on that eventually and conceded the point. Could you hazard a guess as to where a majority of the justices would be on this, or was it too much confusion? You know, it's always hard to do that from oral argument, as we've seen time and again. And and the court was divided. I, I would, you know, say that if I were the state, I might be cautiously optimistic um, that uh, the court will reject uh, the sort of legal challenge petitioners have brought, a facial overbreath challenge. However, I think also the court is not entirely comfortable with how um, the state is administering this law, and there might be a suggestion that they ought to do things differently. But it, it is relatively hard. It, it's fairly hard to tell, and this was not a case where they, a majority of the court played its cards very obviously. The Supreme Court upheld a ban on electioneering within 100 feet of a polling place some time ago. Is this analogous? Well, yes, because obviously uh, the Supreme Court has made very clear that inside a polling place and within 100 feet, there are other very important government interests that need to come into play, not only decorum, but also, frankly, protecting the fundamental right to vote, which is uh, also actually a First Amendment right. Um, This is analogous uh, in as much as the state is trying to do the same thing, but I think the state would say that they're going a little farther in prohibiting not just literal electioneering, but other, uh, you know, political uh, uh, material that, that could reasonably be seen to be focused on an electoral choice. Um, we at the Brennan Center have suggested that if, if the court wanted to narrow the statute to maintain its constitutionality, it could just focus on that electioneering element and, and could adopt a sort of interpretation of it that would let, let it do that. Um, so in that sense, it is analogous. Um, and there are paths the court could take if it, it is uncomfortable with some of the sort of more out there uh, hypotheticals that the petitioners offered. What could the court do? Well, the court, and this is, you know, a bit of a legal, uh, is legal in the weeds, the court can adopt what it called, what we in the law call a saving construction, where it takes a plausible interpretation of the statute that would not raise constitutional questions. It can say, look, we're going to interpret the statute that way, and that avoids the constitutional issue. Our position is that they could do that if they are concerned about some of the hypothetical examples that the petitioners raised. I mean, that's an important point here, which is that uh, for all the sort of examples of people wearing white or, you know, people coming in with the text of the Constitution, the only actual examples in the record are people who wanted to wear buttons calling on poll workers to check ID, and many of those people also had T-shirts that uh, had the name and some slogans associated with the Tea Party, which, as you recall, in 2010 was also very focused on electing candidates. So all the other stuff out there is, to some extent, noise, and there are ways for the court to, to deal with those hypotheticals short of just striking down the law. All right. Well, we will see what happens. It does sound like it was a very spirited oral argument that you uh, attended. Thanks so much, Daniel. That's Daniel Weiner. He is senior counsel, counsel at the Brennan Center. 
It was a bitter divide on the Supreme Court over a decision that immigrants who are being held by the government while facing deportation are not entitled to bail hearings even after months or perhaps years in custody. It was a 5-3 to three vote. Justice Breyer summarized the dissent from the bench in a rare move to show how fervently the liberal justices disagreed with the majority. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, the court overturned an appeals court ruling that had required bond hearings every six months for immigrants who are detained. What was the reasoning of the majority? So this is a bit complex, but I'll try to make it as simple as possible, which is that the Ninth Circuit had held that the statute which requires certain types of immigrants to be detained, and these are immigrants with criminal convictions and immigrants who apply for asylum at the border, uh, could not be constitutional if it was uh, if it was a statute that permitted indefinite detention past six months without a bond hearing. And what they said is there's more than one way to read the statute, and so we will read it in the constitutional way, which is that after every six months you need a bond hearing. And what the Supreme Court said is there is no way to read the statute to allow uh, to to have any kind of release from detention. It's a mandatory detention statute. So if you want to go ahead and rule that statute unconstitutional, you can go ahead and do that Ninth Circuit, and then we'll come back and decide whether that statute is constitutional or not. But there's nothing that that permits an interpretation of the statute where a bond hearing would be required every six months. So there's a hook here because the justices sent the case back to the Ninth Circuit, and the ACLU says they are going to go to the Ninth Circuit now. Now and seek bail hearings with constitutional arguments. What might those be? So the argument is that there's a that at some point an immigrant removal process takes so long that it's unconstitutional to hold them forever without a bond hearing to determine whether they are too dangerous to be released or whether they are some sort of unacceptable flight risk. And so courts have grappled around the country on one-off bases, not con- not class action, and that's a, a key fact because the Supreme Court is saying these might not be something that could be decided as a class. Every individual might have to file an individual claim. But courts around the country have held in individual one-off cases that if an immigrant's removal proceedings takes longer than a year, that maybe after a year it becomes unconstitutional to hold them without a bond hearing. That, that really the government has a burden to try to decide one way or another the fate of the immigrant in a year or less if we're going to mandatorily detain them. But the problem is the reason the court says this is not susceptible to a class is that there are some times where the people in detention engage in dilatory tactics to delay their cases in order to get released. And so this is why they say it needs to be decided on a one-off case basis instead of making a categorical rule. So Justice Breyer wrote an impassioned dissent joined by Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor. Tell us more about the dissent. Well, so the dissent is saying that the statute is clearly readable in a way that permits uh, two kinds of interpretations. One, that the uh, under one way to interpret the statute, uh, you, a person would be able to have release because the detention is on the statute. If you look at like a pure literal meaning without any sort of context, the statute says detain them for their removal proceedings, meaning to detain them until the 
proceeding starts. So you detain a person and you get their proceeding started. And at that point, the detention ceases to be mandatory. And so since those are two ways of reading the statute, that either the detention is only mandatory until the point that the removal proceeding starts, as opposed to that the detention is mandatory for the entire length of the removal proceeding, even if it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, that because of that, you can't have an interpretation that allows five to 20 years of immigration detention. So we need one that permits bond hearings after a length of time. The, the, the problem with the, the Breyer and, and other arguments is that there's nowhere, if you go look in the, um, in the, in the actual code, there's nowhere that it says six months. Six months is just literally taken out of nowhere and invented as a standard. And so that really is a, a, a problem with the interpretation. Whereas in the post-removal cases, which is where this all started from, it used, this used to be a concept that was applied only to people who we could deport, but the country we're trying to deport them to doesn't accept them, like Cuba or Cambodia or some other places. And then we have two choices, detain a person for the rest of their life or let them out. And so there the court said it's unconstitutional if after six months of trying to deport them, you cannot, uh, you cannot do it, then you have to let them out. But that statute had the words 180 days in there, and this one doesn't. And so tomorrow right. from a... So, Sorry. Leon, let's let's just move on for, for a moment. Yeah. We only have about a minute left Sorry here. About that. The court had asked for additional briefs on the constitutional question, but never reached it. Right. Isn't why did the court not reach that question? They want the Ninth Circuit to determine two questions. Number one, can this be viewed as a class? Can all people detained past a certain amount of time be viewed the same? Or do these have to be individually decided based on the length of detention in an individual's case? And then once that's decided, the Supreme Court's going to then figure out, okay, at what length of time does detention cease to be constitutional? But they did not want to opine on that without individual fact patterns to decide individual cases. So the ACLU says that it is gladly going to go before the Ninth Circuit and uh, relitigate this case and use a constitutional argument. And uh, we should mention that even defendants accused of serious crimes have the right to go before a judge and request bail. Thank you, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.